So I uh, just do a little intro about myself. Uh, I'm Michael Bogetsky. I'm a uh, chemical engineer from University of Texas at Austin, go Longhorns. And uh, I've uh, been working in uh, gas separation technologies for, I would call it the oil and gas and uh, chemical industries since about 2012. Um, I've got a long background in hydrogen membranes, um, basically gas separation equipment for refineries, um, and uh, have been kind of studying the energy transition over the years, keeping an eye on things. Um, I now work for a company that is kind of uh, focused on developing technologies um, that are, gate, are geared towards uh, kind of reducing the overall carbon footprint of the planet and finding alternative technologies uh, to get get us off fossil fuels and uh, figure out what that future looks like. So um, lately, since I guess July of 2022, I've been really studying this stuff. Um, and by studying, I mean reading a lot of reports by the uh, IPCC, the uh, International Energy Association, International Renewable Energy Association. There's all these global, uh, what do you call them? I guess uh, funds or whatever that's put together to kind of study, you know, what is actually going on out there? What is actually happening with the CO2 in the atmosphere? Is it a bad thing? Um, why should we change from fossil fuels? And kind of just all the implications of what's going on in the world and, uh, you know how we can how how we can yeah transition away from basically this this stuff that uh, is that you know basically powers our entire civilization right fossil fuels so um, I guess the the first thing I we should get into to kind of get a good understanding of what the problem is and why it's a problem um, I'm sure everyone's heard of the greenhouse effect and global warming right so you've got uh, and, and if, people I'm sure can understand a greenhouse or even a hot car, right? So like just picture you're sitting in your car on a hot summer day, you've got sunlight coming in and it warms up your car. There's no real way for that heat to escape that hot car or that greenhouse. So it kind of just grows and grows and builds and your car gets hotter and hotter. So the atmosphere, essentially, this is a very dumbed down version, but it'll, it'll, it'll get the picture across. So the atmosphere essentially is acting like a greenhouse. Um, it's what keeps us warm. The vacuum of space is like three degrees Kelvin. That's like three degrees above absolute zero. So that would obviously no life can live in that environment. So we're thankful we have an atmosphere. It keeps, uh, keeps the planet warm, um, gets uh, oxygen to all of our cells in our body. I know the, the uh, folks who are big on cellular respiration and kind of the biology stuff can appreciate that. Um, you know, 20, what do we, 21% oxygen, 79% nitrogen, and a mixture of other trace amounts of other gases, argon, uh, some small amounts of helium, water vapor, things like that. So we have an atmosphere that's made up of a bunch of different gases. And um, what happens is there's, over time, the earth is basically establishes like a delicate equilibrium with all of these gases. They go through what's called a carbon cycle. Um, for, for carbon. There's a nitrogen cycle. There's a water cycle. There's all these cycles that is in equilibrium with the planet that has been established over millions, billions of years, four billion years of, of the earth. Um, 
And so the issue with CO2 and the carbon cycle is this, really simplified here. Basically, we are putting out, whenever you burn something, you create CO2, some carbon monoxide, CO, um, a little bit of NOx and other like carbon particles and things like that. So, it, you know, you, you look at a car tailpipe, that stuff coming off is a consequence of a reaction of fossil fuels, um, burning uh, in the presence of oxygen and producing CO2 and water vapor. What we are doing as a global society is we're burning all of this fossil fuel to produce uh, to produce energy and heat and uh, in the form of heat. So more or less, we're putting out more oxygen, uh, more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than the natural processes can sequester it to to keep that equilibrium. So we're throwing off the equilibrium in the natural atmosphere um, that uh, the, the natural cycles that the Earth has. So the problem is okay so, so why is that a problem i guess first let's get into that so you know first we have to understand how how is there the earth warmed through heat from the sun that's our main energy source right um how does heat travel through the vacuum of space well it does so through radiation uh infrared radiation there's all kinds of uh, electromagnetic magnetic spectrum that um, can deliver energy through the vacuum of space. Um, but um, infrared heat basically hits the earth and it goes through the atmosphere and it reaches the, the ground and you know we, we warm the planet. It, it, it hits the molecules in the upper atmosphere and it warms those as well. So what happens is when you start having too much CO2 or even methane, methane is another uh, molecule that has uh, quite high global warming potential you basically increase the concentration of these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere to a level that becomes starts to building up this greenhouse effect okay what is that and how does that happen so sunlight hits the earth warms the earth the dark side of the planet at night right the Earth would then radiate, it's supposed to radiate that heat out into space to cool off. But if you have CO2 in the atmosphere at higher and higher concentrations, you're essentially like blocking that from escaping into outer space. So you're kind of putting a jacket over the planet, more or less, right? Yeah. And as that jacket gets thicker and thicker, more and more CO2 builds up, <clears throat> excuse me, more and more methane as well um starts to, to to increase and you'd have to get real into the carbon cycle and how all that works and that's a entire field of study but essentially long story short um putting more co2 in the atmosphere the earth's not cooling off like it's supposed to and more heat's coming in nonstop, just like that car uh in the hot parking lot analogy so that's essentially the problem and whether you know a long time people were debating is this man-made is it natural cycles of the earth? Is it warming cycles of the sun? Things of that nature. Well, you can actually test this in a gas chamber where you have, you know, atmospheric, um, an, a, an atmospheric chamber, let's call it, and you can shine a light through this chamber with a detector on the other side. 
And based on the amount of light coming into this chamber, you can tell how much energy is supposed to be picked up on the detector on the other side. And then whatever is not detected, that's how much energy is absorbed by the gas molecules in between, right? As you start to introduce more CO2 into this gas chamber, the heat absorbed by the gases is increased and less energy hits the detector. So like, it's a fact, this is like an experimental fact. It's not a debate that this happens, it is happening. The question is, is it man-made or not, which I'm not gonna get political about any of this, but that's the, that's the main issue, right? So we're, we're throwing off the delicate equilibrium of the Earth's cycles by burning fossil fuels to power our entire civilization. Every time you drive a car, every time you're wearing anything made of polyester, every time you're on the internet, every time you do basically anything except sit around, even the food you eat has a, a, a large carbon footprint and um, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of what has enabled our planet to reach, you know, 8 billion people in population. We have this outstanding energy source um, in abundance and it's cheap. So people always, you know, wanna throw shade at like the fossil fuel industry or the chemical industry and think, you know, say like, they're evil corporations and stuff, but I'm sure we all drive cars. We've all flown in planes. We're all eating food. Um, by the way, like 50% of the proteins in your body comes through what's called the Haber-Bosch process. And that is done, uh, that's uh, fertilizer production from fossil fuels in order to grow all the crops that feed the entire planet. So we're all intimately uh, intertwined with this energy source and there's no, there's pathways around it, right? So that's the that's the whole issue. How can we get off this stuff? So uh, before you go on, I do, I do want yeah, to go give, ahead. give yeah, you yeah. a break there. So like you did mention um, a second ago that you didn't want to get political because obviously people are sensitive to, to this debate for whatever reason, right? Like people argue whether it's man-made, whether this is a natural phenomenon, the, the greenhouse effect, this this global warming. And I I think it's interesting how it has become like a partisan issue, right? Like if this is something that we can test in the laboratory, we we can admit that this is happening. We know it's happening, but there are still factions of, of the population that are saying that this is it's a conspiracy, right? Like this isn't this isn't actually happening whenever we can back it up with proof. And your job actually working for like what you're saying, a lot of these like, you know, fossil fuel companies in a lot of ways, right? Like that's correct me if I'm wrong. You are working for for I don't say a fossil fuel company, but you're working for a company that is actually helping with this transition, correct? Yeah, so you could call it a clean tech or a climate tech company looking for alternative ways that don't throw off this delicate balance right. and that still allow us to live our daily lives without much change. Yeah, and, and that's, I think, an important part is because this has become so politicized lately, you're seeing these like very rapid, very quick pushes for complete elimination of of fossil fuels. Where I think that I would saw, kill that would kill like ninety percent of the people on Earth, like within right. a couple of months. I, th I think I saw um, maybe it was California that was trying to implement like a no like ice car, which ice yeah. is like internal combustion engine cars by like twenty twenty five or something like that, making the full transition to EV. But not a lot of people understand, like what you said, how intimately intertwined all of society is to fossil fuels. And this is something that it's it's not just like uh, snap your fingers and we're just going to switch over to completely renewable resources. This is something we have to change the entire global infrastructure to support this transition. It's not an overnight thing. And like what you're saying, there are a lot of businesses that 
potentially aren't going to be, be able to make that transition. So this is, it's more than just a, we should do this, like maybe morally, ethically, we should make this transition because obviously, you know, we are warming the earth up and that does have consequences and feedback loops, but it's how do we actually do that? How do we implement that? Is the technology ready for that transition? And I think that's kind of like where we're going next. Like where is the technology to make this transition? Right. So there's there's two kind of basic problems when people think of renewable energy and, and getting us off fossil fuels, right? So you have what's called like the the electrical side, the power side. This is the when when you plug something into the wall, you're getting electrons coming out of that wall to power your devices, to power your heating and cooling, to power your water pumps, to turn on lights, right? It's it's part of our daily life. Well, in order for those electrons to get there, what typically happens in the US is you have natural gas coming out of the ground, which has a very high calorific value. Um, you burn that in a, um, a, base, uh, a natural gas power plant and you uh, boil water. And when water boils, it expands and becomes a very hot gas called steam. That steam is then used to turn a turbine, which using some um, I guess the electromotive force, if you want to uh, go there, but it, uh, it, it basically causes electrons to move in a wire through metal. Uh, you create um, an electric field basically. And so these turbines are designed to be gigantic, a lot of copper wires involved. Um, these are multi, well, billion dollar, let's call it uh, power plants. And the feedstock to these power plants, the energy source is natural gas or coal or uh, uh, petroleum, um, different types of basically high energy content um, molecules that once you combust them, they release a lot of heat. That boils water, that expands, turns a turbine and sends power to your house and uh, powers the whole planet. So that's the electrification side. Okay, that's one one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is the molecule side. So like I'm wearing probably a 80% cotton, 20% polyester shirt, right? So that polyester or uh, even this laptop I'm talking to you on, it's made of plastic, the pens we write with, the cars you drive. That is the molecule side. Where are we gonna get those molecules if we completely stop oil? Because they, they all come from oil. They come from uh, chemical plants that refine this oil product that comes out of the ground. They use it to make products and mold and melt into certain different ways. And then you get you know, your iPhone charger and spits out. So you can't electrify the plastic, right? You can't right. make a, a turbine. Can you, can you, can you explain that process for a second? Yeah. I'm sure that even myself, a little bit confused as to how something like oil can yeah. turn into plastic like what what is that what is that process and how are fossil fuels actually involved in making of plastics and and poly polyesters and those types of molecules right so oil is essentially a bunch of carbon molecules chained together with uh hydrogens and um you have uh you have this kind of soupy product basically that comes out of the ground in vast vast quantities that is enough for 8 billion people over the next 300 years to use every day, all day, without question. Like it's an ocean, right? So um, through some clever processes, you can, you can kind of react uh, these carbon, long carbon chains and break them apart and put them together, 
make single bonds into double bonds, double bonds into triple bonds. You can add all kinds of molecular shapes on there that kind of give that, um, get it, you take that soupy oil and you break it down into smaller components. And then with those smaller components, you then build up a different product um, through reactors. Um, I'm sure we've all driven by a, uh, um, a refinery or a chemical uh, plant and all that stuff that you see out there. Those are giant reactors that are either breaking apart long carbon change or they're combining them under uh, certain special reaction conditions to create, you know, just like if you remember chemistry lab or like OCHEM lab or something like that, they're creating long chain hydrocarbons that have, and you know, when you put them all together, they have certain properties uh, like a plastic and out comes a bunch of these um, extruded, like think of like a hot glue gun, it comes out like a liquid and then it yeah. kind of solidifies. Um, that is kind of a, a, a basic process of, of how to think of how this, these, these plastic things are made. And then depending on the chemical um, composition or yeah, let's just leave it at that. You can get different properties of the different plastics. You have, you know, a Nalgene bottle versus a styrofoam mm-hmm. cooler that breaks apart. So those will have different properties, but they're all sourced from, petroleum they're all sourced from fossil fuels because they all have carbon and that carbon all came from out of the ground and so that's kind of the the way we we get products that's that's the molecule side of this whole decarbonization thing if we were to turn off fossil fuels tomorrow what what's the next iphone going to be made of what's the next you know laptops what are they going to be made of yeah. And who, who knows, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think that's an important part, right? Where like everyone, I think everyone agrees that like something has to be done about yeah, this sure. like what, even what you just said, like, like fossil fuels can power the entire earth's population for the next 300 years. But what after, like what happens after that? Right. Like, do we, do we just go to another planet and then do we repeat the cycle and do that and then just add infinite or do we potentially solve the, pl- the problem here and try and figure out a, a different alternative? So like, that is, I think, the crux of the argument is that we all understand that eventually, even if someone denies that global warming is a problem, denies that we actually have to solve that, eventually we will run out of, of fossil fuels. It's just a matter of time. Um, no matter how deep we dig, it's just a matter of time. So, like, where do we find that that solution? Where do we where do we find that transition? What is the answer to that question that you just posed? Like, what the, the alternative to the iPhone? The alternative to the the way that we're generating electricity now with these gigantic turbines? Right. So. Let's first start, I guess, with the electrification side. So I mentioned, you know, we, we burn fossil fuels to create heat, to turn to, to boil water, to turn giant tur- uh, turbines to create electricity, right? That's, that's electrical side. Well, all you essentially need to do is turn that turbine, right? You don't have to boil water and expand it. And that's what wind turbines do. Mm-hmm. That's what wind power is. So those work, you know, you, you've got five-story tall wind turbine that when the wind blows, it, um, it, it does that same rotational, um, same rotation, basically you're turning kinetic energy into electric energy by, um, by that same yeah, turbine principle. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so that's one way. Um, also, uh, solar panels, mm-hmm. they take in, that's like a, a materials thing, but essentially they convert light and heat uh, from the sun into uh, electrical current. 
there's uh, there's things called uh, concentrating solar power generators. It's basically you have <laughs> these things are pretty cool. It's almost like an eye of Sauron type situation where you've got this like massive tower in the middle of this massive field. And you have all these mirrors that point, they're all kind of tracking the sun and they point their, their light at this like eye of Sauron type thing. But basically it's like a glowing ball of melted. Uh, it, it's some type of like very heat resistant material, but essentially you're, you're, you're concentrating a whole lot of heat into one point. You can think of like a giant magnifying glass yeah. um, when you like burn, you know, something on some wood. You're basically concentrating solar heat into a single point. Well, these things take, you know, 10 acres of sunlight and concentrate it into a single point. That's an insane amount of temperature. And you can boil water with that. And once you can boil water, you can turn steam turbine. So that's you, another clever way. Do you want to just quickly touch on nuclear? I, I know that this yes. is necessarily like where, where this conversation is going, but nuclear is a really, really, really important energy yep. source potentially. Um, and it's obviously very controversial as well. So do you want to quickly touch yep. on like how nuclear reactions actually produce energy? Yeah. So long story short, you've got these unstable uh, molecules, uranium, plutonium. These are the, the uh, radioactive materials. And basically they're, they're unstable. They're undergoing nuclear decay. I'm not uh, too up on the science of behind of how all that happens, but essentially just picture you've got uh, this energy source and all a nuclear facility does is it basically takes that heat energy from these radioactive uh, materials and they use that to boil water yeah. to turn this giant steam turbine. Yeah. So uh, at some point you've got to have a lot of heat and you got to turn a giant turbine or you have a lot of solar panels. That's just kind of how it boils down to. That's like the only ways we know how to make electrons move through wires and electrons moving through wires is electricity. That is current. I, th I think so, the crux of that is you have to turn some type of energy into electrical yeah. energy. It doesn't just, it doesn't just get made up. Yeah. So, so that's electrical, right? Then there's also heat energy. Like you can heat your house. Like, what do you do there? Some folks have, you know, a natural gas burner. You're basically literally combusting natural gas, to, which through that reaction produces a lot of heat. And then you blow that out through your house. It's filtered, right? So you don't die from carbon monoxide poisoning because that is what byproduct of combustion. But uh, that's, that's a, a heat energy source. So energy is kind of like almost like a Swiss army knife of, of ways to apply it. Like there's, there's things called heat pumps which uh, Europe uses a lot of, and actually the rest of the world does, and, and we're trying to transition United States in, into these heat pumps. But essentially, you're using like comp small compressors and you're moving hot air and cold air between a boundary layer to either heat or cool your house. So um, again, that's a whole field yeah. of study too, but uh, there's, there's ways of electrifying heat as mm -hmm. well um you know when you when you cook food on an electric stove you see those coils get like red hot you're putting a whole lot of electrons through a highly resistive material and the resistance to flow is heat uh, the resistance to electron flow through that coil is heat and that's why they glow red hot that's how the old light bulbs used to work as well they would push uh, that essentially push energy just, through just a wire. friction is that essentially just friction 
Yep, electron friction. You can think of it like that. So, um, so that's that's a heat energy. You also can, you know, you have a gas stove. You light natural gas on fire or propane, and um, that gives off heat. And you can cook your food that way. So, there's these new types of stoves called induction stoves. Those are a little more uh, sexy, let's say. But uh, again, the same principle. It's using electricity to pass um, current through metals that then create uh, heat through electron resistance, basically. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's, let's, let's call that whole, this whole discussion so far, like the electron, uh, sorry, the electricity and like the power side. Um, there's the other side, I mentioned the molecule side, right? Like what are, what are we going to make the next iPhone out of, or what are we going to make your next, you know, shoes? What, what, right. what are, the products that we use every day. Everything. Everything. Everything has like a, a petroleum base when, when you go all the way down to, to the fundamental building blocks of it. But there are some really cool ideas out there on how we can continue to do this. A lot of it has to do uh, with kind of a, a closed loop recycling uh, type scenario. But you can also tap into the Earth's natural carbon cycles, right? Plants take in uh, CO2 and they put out oxygen and we breathe oxygen obviously, but the CO2, the plants take in, they use it to build themselves, like to build up, right? Like cellulose, um, it's, it's a carbon chain. Uh, where does that carbon come from? It comes from the atmosphere. So um, the cellulose in those plants, and this is where we start getting into what's called renewables and biofuels and things like that, that's the same, well, it's a similar type of carbon source that we could tap into if we, basically we had to process it a lot more different than what we've been doing with uh, petroleum, but um, you'd have to kind of build up the technology. There's a lot of demonstration plants out there on how to do this kind of stuff um, using like um, corn or soybean oil feedstocks. And, it's more expensive to do this. And here's another thing, another topic I wanted to touch on uh, just to give people kind of a, a sober view of why we use fossil fuels. This stuff comes out of the ground, like very near ready to go. Like it's highly energy dense. It's, you know, millions of years of decaying phytoplankton and plant matter that have just through the earth's natural carbon cycle, through tectonic plates, through sediment buildup have just been pushed deep underground and sat there. And uh, we discovered this stuff, found out how energy dense it is. It's a liquid at room temperature. It has a crazy amount of energy associated with it. It can boil that water really easily. And there's an ocean of it. So obviously we're gonna use that, right? No one wants to push a plow. They want a tractor. No one wants to walk all the way to work. They wanna drive a car. So like. People like to, to point the evil finger at like oil companies and things like that, but it's literally the, probably the reason you're alive today um, and everyone you know as well. Like look at the carrying, look, look at the earth population before the industrial revolution, yeah. before we started burning stuff. Like that's I, what we do today forever. Yeah. So like the population boom is literally on the back of this insane energy source that's so cheap and so uh, readily available and abundant to use. All our infrastructure is built up around using that, around refining that source 
And so we've got a lot of momentum in that direction. There's just one little problem. It produces this greenhouse effect that eventually might turn us into the planet Venus if we don't do anything about it, right? Uh, Venus is the hottest uh, surface temperature of any planet in the solar system. Basically on fire. Because of the, yeah, because of the greenhouse effect, its atmosphere does the same thing that we are worried about, you know, in the far, far future. This is not, you know, this might be 100,000 years away if we never stop, but I don't know, who knows. There's actually yeah, I, some interesting I, proposals on like how quickly we could yeah. have a runaway effect and, and be totally screwed, but... I do think it's important, though, to, to mention that we don't have to become planet Venus for things to go downhill really, really quickly. Right. So Absolutely. Like, yeah. like what you mentioned, the, the Earth's carbon cycle and the Earth in general, like it's a very, very, very delicate equilibrium that's been established over billions of years. And one degree of global temperature increase is a gigantic downstream effect. Like that's a very, very, very big deal. Not only just, you know, polar caps melting, but there are entire ecosystems that are yep. built up around the temperature being exactly the way it is. Like we've seen already, you know, massive increases in hurricanes just yeah. because of warmer water, right? Like these things are gigantic, gigantically big deals. Yeah. And we don't have to see, you know, the, the temperature of the earth increase to the point where we are melting until that is a big deal. I mean, even, even, you know, two or three degrees Celsius increase is going to be a really, really, really disastrous thing for the entire world. Yeah, absolutely. Like you could literally change the way the oceans flow when you suddenly yeah. dump all of Greenland ice sheet into the water. And by suddenly, I mean, over the next 200 years, you yeah. know, we have to, when, when we talk about time skills here, we need to think geologically, but then we also need to think, I mean, there's, there's some ideas out there. There's a, there's a thing called the, it's got a funny name. It's called the methane clathrate or the, the methane gun clathrate or something like that. I can't remember, but the idea is, okay, you get a little bit warmer then you melt a little bit of the, let's say Siberian tundra where so much rotting methane has been locked away. By the way, methane's 25 times worse of a greenhouse gas than CO2. So you melt a little bit of that ice, a little bit of methane is released. That increases the insulation factor, let's call it, on the planet, which then heats up the planet a little bit more, which then melts more tundra or, uh, you know, these frozen areas where the stuff's supposed to be locked away when we have it in equilibrium temperature. But right now we're in flux. So there's, there's ways it could go very bad very quickly. Um, George Carlin always had a funny line. He's like, the, the, the planet's going to be fine. It's the people who are fucked. <laughs> <laughs> well, so like our, our way of life would like massively change. So that's, that's, that's the scare, right? That's the, you, you don't want ecosystem collapse. You don't want to go to the right. grocery store and all we have to eat is some like chemically produced fertilizer product. And there's, because there's no more fish left in the ocean because now it's uninhabitable. Like, What's, who's going to create the oxygen? Like most of the oxygen on the planet is from phytoplankton in the ocean. Right. So like now that we've gotten like the, the kind of doomsday stuff out yeah. of the way, I think it is important to shift more towards like the optimistic viewpoint, yeah. right? Like how can we actually start to solve this problem? Like how can we start to sequester some of this carbon out of the yeah. atmosphere while simultaneously putting less of it into the atmosphere? How, how can we kind of reestablish that equilibrium that, We've been so dependent on for the last, you know, hundred thousand years as a species. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Even burning, you know, you mentioned hundred thousand years cooking food, right? That yeah. Some some people say that's what allowed our brain to be the size it is because we access more proteins from using fire and cooking food. So like, 
that's not a fossil source because we're burning a tree, which is part of the natural carbon, carbon cycle, which technically is net neutral because a tree grows from the CO2 in the atmosphere. You cut it down, you burn it, you cook your food, that CO2 goes back in the atmosphere, grows another tree. That's a circular thing. That's okay. It's when you take it out from underground where it's not supposed, where it's supposed to stay, and then you bring it up into the atmosphere, burn it, and add to that insulation at a rate greater than it can be naturally sequestered, that becomes the buildup. That's the accumulation over time. So now that we've got kind of the, the basic idea and like what could go wrong and kind of the issues surrounding it, the where where is the hope here? Why 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 are people thinking we've got a way out of this? And we do, there's pathways out of it. Problem is they're expensive. Yeah. Um, and then who's gonna pay for that? So um, let's first start with the electricity side. So some very, very encouraging news has been happening in renewable electricity generation. Um, the cost, it's called the levelized cost of electricity, basically takes into account the entire, we call it CapEx and OpEx. CapEx is your capital expenditures, how much it costs to put a giant, let's call it utility scale solar farm uh, to install that. That's going to cost you X hundreds of millions of dollars. A lot of money. A lot of money. Then you have the operating expenses of how much, you know, what's the maintenance cost to keep this thing running? How often do you have to change these things out? And so when you combine all that together, you get kind of what's called a levelized cost of electricity. And actually just, in, I think in 2021, the levelized cost of electricity from renewable energy sources is now cheaper than fossil fuel sources. That's a huge, huge thing for everyone. Like it's cheaper if you want more electricity capacity, it is now cheaper to go put up a, a wind farm, a solar farm, um, a hydro dam. Um, there's other interesting things, but that's now cheaper than building a new uh, coal fire power plant or a new uh, natural gas plant, cheaper. That's without, um, without any subsidies or anything. That's just purely the economics of the thing. And economics and thermodynamics always guide what happens. Yeah, there's a little bit of, you know, people want to think, oh, it's, everything's so corrupt. It's like, no, it just literally is cheaper. Like the, the, the natural gas coming out of the ground is like almost ready to burn. There's, this, there's a little bit of processing you have to do to it. Whereas, um, you know, a renewable natural gas, and, and we can get into that, that's the company that I'm working for. We're looking at ways to purify renewable natural gas from landfill uh, and dairy uh, farm, um, dairy farm, uh, industrial dairy farms, basically, that have like 10,000 head of cattle. That's a lot of shit. That's a lot of methane that's rotting. If you could capture that, you can then have a chemically identical methane than what comes out of the ground. And that came from cows and cows ate grass and grass got the CO2 from the atmosphere. So it's uh, you're closing the loop here is the idea, but it's sorry, I'm kind of getting, getting away from it, but <laughs> you're good. You're good. You, uh, you, so the cost of renewables is plummeted. Like it's reduced, like I think 85 to 90% since 2010, it's come down. It, it, it is now that cheap. Uh, 2010 to 2020 saw, yeah, 85 to 90% reduction in the cost of renewables making it cheaper than fossil fuels. So no new fossil fuels, hopefully, uh, 
or fossil fuel plants for the electricity side would needed to be built would need to be built over time. Granted, there are locations that are um, fossil fuel rich and very renewable poor, like they don't have a good I don't know take uh, take Ireland's not going to have very many solar panels, but they've got a lot of offshore wind capabilities. Yeah. So Russia. there's different. Yeah, there's different places around the globe that are more suitable for one type of renewables than others. Like uh, the dam, like if you have a giant river next to you and you dam that, you can. That's a lot of potential energy. So yeah. there's locations where this works and where it doesn't. So that's kind of the electricity side. There is there's lots of hope there to get those electrons into your wall outlet uh, to power you know your house. So there's light at the end of that tunnel. Um, the molecule side is a bit more challenging. These are called hard to decarbonize sectors. Um, basically what these, uh, these energy associations started naming these things, but like, um, for example, um, let's take, let's take an airplane. Um, an airplane has certain properties that allow it to fly and the energy density of the fuel that is on board that airplane is very high. You have a high energy density, meaning you get a lot, a lot of bang for your buck and the mass that you have to load onto that airplane, that it, uh, the fuel is lighter weight than yeah. say a battery. I'm sure we all familiar, we're all familiar with how heavy uh, an electric car is compared to a normal car. That's because batteries have less energy density than fossil fuels. It's a fact of thermodynamics. There's no evil corporation making that happen. That it is chemistry. It's physics. It is what it is. So how would you, you know, in a, in a decarbonized world, and, and this is an example I'm just running down to show, to show a hard to decarbonize sector. So airplanes account for a shit ton of CO2. Every time anyone flies, I don't know, there's probably 30,000 planes in the air right now all burning jet fuel that comes from underground. So you can't electrify those. There's some interesting opportunities there, but you can't have a 500 pa uh, passenger Boeing 747 flying. Like the size of the airplanes would have to be redesigned. Uh, battery technology would have to make leaps and bounds. These are, these are far away. Uh, th these things are far away. So there are certain fundamental things that cannot be electrified you have to still use high energy density thing. Um, and so where could that come from? What could we do with that? I mentioned the uh, using like corn ethanol and things like that. There's certain processes out there. A lot of it is uh, under like Department of Energy funding. They're doing demonstration plants. There's a couple of companies out there that are starting to get a lot more attention now that there's a lot more um, a lot more focus and a lot more push from governments to to make this happen. Um, to, to hit net zero by 2050 is essentially what everyone is trying to do, right? To limit the the global warming factor. So um, that's that's something that you know it, it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of investment and a lot of infrastructure changes and a lot of supply chain changes and a lot of uh, research and development. And so, so that that's coming, and it's on the way. There's a there's a light at the end of that tunnel. The the other interesting thing um, is uh, what are called feedstock molecules. Again, we're on the molecule side of these hard to decarbonize um, sectors. Let's call them. So, 
uh, let me just take a, an example of fertilizer. Okay. I mentioned half the protein in your body likely came from a Haber-Bosch process. The Haber-Bosch process was basically done in the 20s and improved upon subsequently, maybe it's the 30s. I forget exactly when, but um, you basically take hydrogen and air, you take the nitrogen in the air and under special conditions in a high temperature pressure reactor under a catalyst, you can create NH3. NH3 is ammonia. Ammonia is a building block for urea and other nitrates, which basically allows food to grow at the rate it does, allows us to have the breadbasket of America. Um, that's great and all, but that hydrogen comes from where? Where does we don't just have hydrogen? Hydrogen's H2. It's the slipperiest molecule there is. It's the tiniest molecule there is. It's uh, if if you had a, I'm sure we've all heard the hydrogen balloons, like the the Hindenburg and stuff. Yeah. That it's it very lightweight, right? It used to, uh, it could like lift and fly you around, but it's also very uh, combustible, very very combustible and flammable, yeah. right? So, so um, that hydrogen comes from natural gas and. What that basically is, is you've got natural gas that you, natural gas is methane. Methane is CH4, one carbon, four hydrogens. So under, again, special conditions, you know, chemies, chemical engineers kind of figured this out a long time ago, or scientists and then engineers made it happen. Uh, you basically split that carbon off of those hydrogens and you create CO2 plus H2. Um, and the mole ratio is added in there too. So um, when you produce that hydrogen, your byproduct is CO2. And that is what we currently do for all of the fertilizer production on the planet. Um, we're burning natural gas to create hydrogen, to then combine with air, to create ammonia, to create fertilizers so that you and I can eat. I would say, unless you grew the food yourself, like right outside on, on your back porch or whatever, without any fertilizers at all, that's probably an actual situation where you're not utilizing natural gas to eat, you know, when you, when you trace it all the way back. Um, so then, so like, how could you, how could you electrify that? Like what could a wind turbine do in order to produce ammonia? Nothing. You need hydrogen. Where can you get hydrogen from? You can split water uh, in what's called electrolysis. And you basically run a current uh, through a um, solution and you have an anode and a cathode. It, it gets difficult, but basically you're splitting H2O into H2 plus O2. And uh, now you've got a feedstock molecule. Now you've got hydrogen. From that hydrogen, you can then build a lot of different uh, chemical compounds that are considered feedstock molecules for everything we use in our daily lives. Methanol is a big one. Methanol's CH3OH. There's uh, reactions that combine to make um, a bunch. There's a bunch of ways kind of to get to methanol, but methanol is a, a massive feedstock molecule for all the plastics that we use. Um, that methane comes from underground or byproducts of petroleum. Um, basically, it always has a fossil fuel starting point. And um, 
trying to decarbonize that sector is, is really where a lot of the, the, the R&D is going and a lot of companies are, are trying to basically crack that, that nut there basically to try to figure out, you know, how can we have, how can we feed the entire planet when, you know, it's so cheap to just burn natural gas and do it. So the electrolysis thing I mentioned, that takes electricity. Okay, so if you pair the cheap renewable electricity with an, electrol an electrolyzer, you can create hydrogen. Then you combine the hydrogen with the nitrogen from the atmosphere and boom, now you've got urea. You've completely decarbonized the uh, fertilizer. Problem is that's very expensive. It's very inefficient. There's a lot of uh, issues along the way. Not a lot of locations have access to um, a water source that can be be implemented at the scale required. These these plants are massive. I don't know if you've driven by. I mean, we're we're from kind of the Houston area. You've driven by these things. You can drive by a plant for like like two minutes going 60 miles an hour and you're still at the same plant. Like these things are giant facilities. So you have to have insane amounts of resources in order to make this happen in order to feed everybody. And right now the easiest way to do that is fossil fuels. And that's how we've evolved over time to, to be dependent on it. So yeah, it's, it, an, up, it's an uphill yeah. battle for sure. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was going to say like, there are, I think uh, a few things that are interesting to me. And, and one of them is, is that, you're mentioning things like transportation, right? I think transportation yeah. is immediately what all of us think of whenever we think of global warming, we think of, of carbon footprint, right? We're thinking of cars driving around. We like have pictures in our head of eight lane traffic jams and you know jumbo jets flying through the air, but we don't think about what you're saying, you know, food sources. We don't think about the clothes that we're wearing. We don't think about our, our, electric, our electronics and- hey. Paint. Yeah. Yeah. We, we don't, Everything. we don't yeah. think about all of these things and that just kind of reinforces how dependent we are on fossil fuels at the moment. And one thing that you mentioned too, was that the cost of electricity or cost of renewable electricity has gone down drastically and that's yeah. awesome, right? Like that, that's a great, great, great thing for everyone involved, but incentives kind of drive everything, right? And th if there are companies that are going out to create, let's say this, this very low carbon footprint, um, you know, ammonia or, yeah. or some kind of fertilizer. If that is costing them 10 X, what it would cost them just to use a fossil fuel to do it. There's no incentive for them to do it. They're trying to make money. Right. They're, they're a company, right? So like, that's where you see all of these government subsidies coming in. Right. So let's kind of talk about what governments are actually making a push, like what, we collectively are doing maybe as like the US, maybe as the rest of the world, kind of like where that dynamic is currently, maybe where it's going in the future. Right, so I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. This stuff is, is so expensive because there's so much more processing involved in order to get it to the same finished product that we're used to. Yeah. Whereas the fossil source is just cheap and easy and there's minimal processing. So, um, so with that basic, fundamental foundation of thermodynamically, it's just easier to burn rather than, you know, grow crops and then do this and then do that and then do this and then react that under high temperatures. By the way, where's that temperature and heat coming from? And then finally, boom, now you've got a bio-derived carbon that you can now say, oh, I've got an eco-plastic. It's like, yeah. yeah, that's 10x more expensive. So government subsidies are what is going to have to step in. 
And government subsidies basically um, through basic, they're just tax credits essentially, um, they are a check that the government writes to a company in who satisfies certain conditions of producing, I'll take hydrogen for example, it's, it's one of, I'm most familiar with, my background is in hydrogen and it's a, a big, there's a lot of uh, hype going around about how hydrogen can be the fuel of the future. There's a lot of thermodynamics and physics that says that is a terrible idea uh, for certain reasons. And uh, then you start diving into, all right, who's really pushing this as the, as the <laughs> fuel source of the future. But so hydrogen, um, Hydrogen is a feedstock molecule I mentioned. It's, uh, it's important to produce, but we don't produce enough of it renewably. So the government steps in and in 2022, they passed the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And in that act, um, it passed by one vote. I think Kamala Harris was the, the tying vote uh, that pushed it uh, into law. So um, the Basically, the U.S. is going to say anyone who produces renewable hydrogen, and there's a lot of qualifications you have to fulfill in order to qualify for this, uh, we will write you a check for up to $3 per kilogram of hydrogen you produce. And uh, that's called a production tax credit. And if you are a renewable energy company and you say, okay, I build electrolyzers, and remember electrolyzers split water, and produce hydrogen uh, from a renewable energy source or any electricity source. But in order to qualify for these government incentives, your electricity source has to be carbon free or low carbon. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you're a startup company and, you, and you're building an electrolyzer and you're saying, I'm going to go out and decarbonize fertilizer, okay, based on the stuff I just described. Um, it costs you a shit ton of money to produce your electrolyzer. By the way, economies of scale aren't there and those will improve over time as more companies do it. Um, so the government spurs incentives to say, I know it's gonna cost you a bunch, but what we're gonna do is we're gonna subsidize you and we're gonna cut you a check at the end of the year for all of the stuff you've produced. Um, and basically write you a check that takes your costs like down 40% maybe. And if you couple that with the cost of the plummeting cost of renewable electricity, it is highly like the models I've been running for, for my company. Like it looks like uh, green hydrogen is what it's called when it's produced from a renewable source. Um, there's different color codes of hydrogen from where they're sourced from brown hyd uh, hydrogen, not literally the color brown, but it's a color code. Brown hydrogens from natural gas, black hydrogens from coal, uh, et cetera. So, um, actually, uh, gray hydrogen is from natural gas. There's a whole rainbow of, of color codes for hydrogen, but essentially you qualify for these things. The government writes you a check and it drops. It, it makes you a company who is very capital sensitive. You're, you're not in business if you're not making money. You will go out of business. That is how the world works. And by the way, you need financing and banks don't want to jump in on stuff that's not guaranteed. So the government has to put a law in place in order to spur innovation, financing, start a competition, start a market. And that's what they've done in 2022 with the Inflation Reduction Act for hydrogen. It's basically trying to create a hydrogen economy. And the uh, what they hope to do is 
I mean, let's be honest where that money's coming from. It's coming from all of us. It's, it's yep. the combined taxpayer dollar, right? So we are all subsidizing more expensive renewable electricity. Um, sorry, uh, renewable uh, hydrogen, let's say. Um, electricity from renewable sources kind of come down on its own. There's, there's incentives as well, but not to the, uh, the degree we're seeing here lately, uh, this most recent push. Um, so um, basically you're, you're cutting the costs of everything. And, and what, what the government wants to do is create a market, create companies, cre they're not literally creating them, but they're setting the stage economically for renewables to compete against these fossils, uh, fossil fuels that are thermodynamically and economically cheaper. So the idea behind that is, okay, what are we gonna do? Subsidize that forever? We'll, we'll bankrupt ourselves, right? No, what we do is we do it for five years uh, and then slowly taper that off as economies of scale have kicked in, as um, supply chains have adjusted, as more R&D and innovation has come out. And eventually, just as renewable electricity has fallen 85% in cost, so will the renewable uh, molecule production, or renewable hydrogen, let's say, uh, as one idea. That will come down as well. Um, there's all sorts of places where hydrogen can be used in decarbonizing uh, steel manufacturing. So like steel is iron ore, F-E-O. F-E-O is rust. Rust cannot be used to build a skyscraper. You have to refine that iron basically to get solid iron uh, and remove that oxygen there's ways to do that the way we've been doing it is with guess what fossil fuels and it has a massive carbon footprint highly energy intensive we've seen those steel foundries that are you know in terminator 2 the guys glowing uh glowing red lava of metal like that's how stuff gets done um, because it's cheap and that's how they do it well there's now ways and innovation coming out on how to do it with hydrogen from a decarbonized source. So there's pathways out there. Concrete's another huge one. Don't even get me started on that. <laughs> but like literally our entire civilization, like, like I would say 90% of everything around you has at one, something had to burn to get it there in its form next to you. Either it was delivered by a truck, it was, uh, you know, created in, or, or it's got a coating on it that's, helps it last longer or keeps stuff from rotting even the food you eat has uh has some uh like food grade ethylene around it to help it from um help to keep it from rotting help it last longer on the shelf everything has this carbon source so um without government incentives and uh companies innovating and public sentiment backing and pushing this stuff it just makes no sense to do anything other than what we've been doing the problem though is it's going to kill us all one day if we don't do anything about it. So no, that's, I, that's pretty much it. <laughs> I, I think, I think that's, that's awesome. Um, honestly, like this was a, a really enlightening conversation for myself because I know that we had talked about it um, whenever we had our brief conversation setting this up. Um, but I, I think that myself, I, I like to believe that I know what's going on, especially whenever it comes to, to science research. Um, but obviously like the, the details are, are something that I think most people are pretty ignorant of. Um, and it's really easy to get kind of get caught up in what you're seeing in the news, what you're hearing from like, you know, political figures as like the biggest issues are. And the, the truth sometimes just kind of gets washed away in that. But like, I do want to use this time as just maybe like a rapid fire question type of thing, sure, just yeah. my own curiosities. So, um, 
you mentioned things like electric batteries. So obviously I think the, the biggest company that most people understand is like leading the way with like EVs, like Tesla and things like that. Yeah. Tesla is, I would consider also like a pretty big energy company at this point. Like they do a lot with like batteries and trying to really yeah, mega packs. Mega packs. They're really, really trying to stretch maybe, that. Maybe one thing I should just really quick mention um, in um, something I forgot that's actually very important about renewable electricity. Uh, the biggest problem with renewable electricity is the intermittency. Like, that means the sun doesn't shine at night and the wind doesn't always blow. And power has to go, electricity has to go somewhere. You, you can think of electricity like water flow. Um, if, you are, if, if there's an electric current, you have electrons moving. Where are they moving to? They where are they going? You have to be, either you have a demand and you have houses on a grid or you know, industry constantly taking these electrons to power stuff. Um, you know, from the producing uh, location. But if there's no take from it, then there's no flow. No flow is no power. So the whole issue with uh, renewables is how do you solve that intermittency problem? And the, pro the, the biggest thing is storage. I didn't really touch on that. It's, it's like literally the, the biggest issue. Um, when you are producing excess, um, excess renewable energy, you can store it. And there's a lot of clever ways to store this stuff, literally thousands of ways to do it, but just battery storage, let's say, is one big one. And that's what reminded me uh, your, your, your initial, I guess your, the first part of your question I, yeah. got me thinking. Anyways, um, <laughs> batteries is uh, like you're basically sending electrons to a large megapack battery. Let's take the Tesla megapacks and you're creating like a, a massive capacitor. Um, actually, technically, it's not a capacitor, but... Anyways, uh, that is then, once the sun goes down, let's just take that as a simple, once the sun goes down, then that battery starts to flow electricity into your homes or to wherever you're using when it's not being generated by the sun. So that's a, another um, another massive component to, to the whole renewable energy problem. Yeah, it's cheaper, but where does it, what do you do when the sun's not shining? How, and that's where things like nuclear can step in. Yeah. That's where things like, uh, you know, you can have a natural gas fired power plant with carbon capture attached to it, although it's pretty poor efficiency, something like only 20% of the carbon is actually captured. Um, the, uh, the rest just goes off into the atmosphere, methane leakages, et cetera. It's not great, but there's ways to, to kind of fill in the gaps where renewables can't do 24 seven. And so just kind of one final thought on, the, on all of the energy and all of renewable uh, discussion is, it's going to be kind of a Swiss army knife of solutions, let's say, that, uh, you know, this works well here, and this works well in this time, and this works well in this time, and kind of combined, it's going to try to, you know, get us off this fossil fuel addiction we have. So wanted to get that in before, uh, before we go too far into the battery thing, but yeah, go ahead with the battery. No, yeah, I was, I, just to piggyback off that, I actually saw something the other day, I read an article about like gravity batteries, where essentially yeah. they convert old mine shafts into yeah. gravity batteries to store energy yeah. which i thought was the coolest shit in the world um yeah. but but yeah where i was going with that question was basically just like companies that are exciting for you right now like companies that you see really pushing the envelope forward really making a lot of progress on like some of these problems yeah so i think the the biggest stuff that i've seen lately and it might just be the bias of the industry i'm in there, there could be a lot of other things but um you know i'm, I'm on the the molecule side of, of this whole thing uh 
And uh, the, the really the electrolyzers to me um, seems to be like from first principles thinking you need hydrogen and you need a lot of it and it's got to come from somewhere. And if it's not going to come from natural gas, the next cheapest thing is electrolyzers through electrolysis from renewable energy. And the government just put out this massive production tax credit on them. So um, I like, uh, there's this company called Bloom Energy, uh, Plug Power, uh, Biotech. Uh, if you just Google like electrolyzer companies, they are really gearing up for um, a big push into hydrogen production, which is, as I mentioned, a feedstock molecule for so many products. Um, like a fundamental building block of basically our entire society. And so um, there's startups everywhere. I mean, my, one of my buddies uh, is a, he just did a stint at MIT. Uh, he's working over at Chevron now, and he's kind of forming their decarbonization plan based on all the technologies they have. Man, you, you can spend days talking about all the new energy uh, technologies they're trying to come up with, but um, the big, stuff that's gonna be done at scale and at uh, a price, let's say, that is affordable for most folks. Because you don't wanna cut off fossil fuels and kill half the planet who can't afford a massive solar panel on their house. You just can't do that. The, the people who are gonna suffer are those who can't afford it. So the, the cost is gonna be a huge factor, but to me, the electrolyzer thing, coupled with the, the plummeting cost of renewable electricity, that's something to keep an eye on as far as innovation that companies are doing. Um, and then, yeah, yeah I'm not uh, too deep into all of the, the weeds, but uh, a, a, good, um, a good location or a source, if you want to read up more on, on this stuff, is the IEA. Uh, it's the International Energy Association. And they kind of put together a bunch of reports on what needs to be done, how it could be done, and kind of like executive summaries on, on what's going to happen and, and, and what needs to improve. And then from there, you kind of can just use your brain and think, okay, if we have to electrify railroads, okay, who's doing that? Yep. And you can, you know, who's doing electrolyzer production? Who's doing, um, you know, battery production at scale? Tesla is pretty much the only name, uh, yep. name, name in the game there. but um, there's other folks trying to step in, but um, I, I think for me, it starts with reading the actual reports and like cutting out all the bullshit, cutting out all the propaganda and going to the source of the information backed by science, backed by studies and um, yeah, kind of just walking your way through stuff and, and figuring out what needs to be done. How, how could it be done? And you know, who is looking at doing that stuff, who owns the patents on these innovative processes. So to me, that's kind of where I would start. Um, and I've, I've done a little bit of that for, for the company I work with now, just to kind of see where do we need to position ourselves. We do gas processing systems for renewable, um, renewable natural gas. I mentioned, you know, taking methane off of landfills and stuff. The next big push is going to be hydrogen purification, um, which is a, uh, I mentioned from electrolysis, um, there, there's, just, there's just more efficient ways to use hydrogen than we currently do because fossil fuels are so cheap for so long, just burn it. Yeah. Uh, and, and now, you know, we've got to get more efficient with that. So, um, yeah, you could spend a whole career, a lifetime, yeah. multiple careers. You know, there's entire companies 
trying to figure all this stuff out. Um, I'm just trying yeah, to figure out what it's interesting. I'm just trying yeah. to get advice here, man. I'm just, I'm just trying to get invested. Yeah. In this. Um, yeah. yeah. No, so I, ne- next question. I do want to be super sensitive to your time. So I just want to no, ask you're, you. are good. You're good. Um, next question I would have would be how dangerous is nuclear? I know that you're not a nuclear expert, but I, I think that that's something yeah. that a lot of people don't understand. Like I, I'm not a nuclear expert either. I, I yeah. like, I'm at least well-read on the topic, but how dangerous is nuclear energy? Yeah, so we all maybe have seen Chernobyl from yeah. uh, HBO, uh, yeah. Fukushima, uh, Three Mile Island. There have been accidents, right? There have been disasters. There have been horrible uh, releases and things like that, uh, Chernobyl being the biggest. Um, basically, this these highly reactive, well, unstable molecules, basically they're shooting off like uh, heavy particles that are basically, you know, at atomic size bullets flying through your body and they completely destroy your DNA, uh, and basically make you non-functional, turn you into a mush of soup or whatever. <laughs> if, if you were I, to sit there, I think, I think it's important to note too, that like the word radiation has yeah. a negative connotation, but like Sunlight is radiation. Yeah, heat is radiation. So like the the dangerous kind of radiation is the type that you're talking about, like these heavy, unstable molecules coming from like plutonium, uranium, things like that that we use for nuclear fission. So like um, one thing that I think is very interesting is that like the number of deaths directly attributable to uh, to nuclear accidents is like very low. Right. But if you look at even like, deaths associated with like fossil fuel accidents oh, yeah. say like you know oil refineries blowing up or there being accidents yeah. on the coast and you know these deep sea oil rigs um you can directly attribute many more deaths to things like you know fossil fuels um yeah. so like where where do you think that this this nuclear is dangerous comes from do you think it's just like sensationalism from a few yeah. big accidents I think nuclear obviously has the potential to, to you know, let, let's take the Chernobyl incident. Like yeah. you could have, like, let's say one of our power plants melts down. And by the way, these things are designed to be very safe, right? Yeah. The, the next generation nuclear, they're also extremely expensive. But yeah. The next generation nuclear plants, um, they're supposed to be intrinsically safe. So like if all power fails and if everything all the controls that you're using to, to keep this reaction stable and the water flowing through it to boil, off steam uh, if it like that stuff is going to be designed to be intrinsically safe and i think over time they will be you know as safe as a toaster oven eventually long term uh, if the economics innovation continue in that path but i think the 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 real scare is the potential to just i mean we think nuclear nuclear bombs right uh the potential is massive but we've been fortunate so far um well some people have been unfortunate, but um, I think that's that's where the scare comes from. Um, I I don't I don't think public and eh, maybe maybe public sentiment is plays a big factor in why we're not we don't have a lot more. But a lot of it has to do with the economics behind. They're very expensive to to, to produce. Uh, most of them get like canceled like halfway through the planning phases and once they start to to run the numbers on them. And like all the facilities we have are all I think 70s. 1970s. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're old. So um, uh, the analogy, I, 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 I'm not afraid of nuclear. I, I think energy, anything can be engineered to be made safe with yeah. the proper precautions and enough knowledge. You can engineer just about anything. Um, but like, I mean, think of how uh, 
you know, think of how good a car was in the 1970s versus a car right now. Like it's massively better. Like yeah. apply that same logic to what we could do today if, if we had the funding and the 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 backing to to, to go through it and make the next generation nuclear power. And a lot of folks are working on this. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just think it, the potential for massive disaster and then the economics combined with it, combined with the plummeting cost of renewable electricity, all kind of makes like, yeah. well, why would I spend $5 billion on this plant when I can spend $250 million and get, you know, most of this uh, electricity I need for literally no meltdown yeah, no risk. at all or whatever. Yeah. 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 So I, I think that all combines. I don't think there's any one reason for anything in yeah. life in general, by the way, yeah. there's always multiple factors. Yeah. So how viable is fusion? Okay. Uh, yeah. So fusion, I think we've seen, maybe folks have seen recently, like the new breakthrough they had about uh, fusion energy. They finally got a little bit more energy out of the reaction chamber, just the chamber than uh, what was put in. So it was a net gain. What they left out was- Charging like, lasers. Yeah, yeah, basically like, like it was like the entire output of the, of the United States electricity grid concentrated into like one second to, they left that out. But yeah. um, I'm not an expert on fusion. I had heard a lot of podcasts about it though. So <laughs> yeah, I... uh, the, 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 just real quick, my take on it is, you know, there's an old adage that fusion is always, you know, 30 years away. And um, due to the difficult nature of fusion, basically you're creating a star yeah. in a lab under yep. extreme conditions. Uh, and then you're going to also try to extract energy stably uh, out of this thing. I think by the time that becomes a process that is demonstrably repeatable at scale, the cost of renewable electricity, which is what you're trying to replace with fusion energy, the cost of renewable electricity will be so, so cheap and yep. so much safer and so much more economical by the, at the end of the day that like, if you're a, if, if you're a municipality and you need more energy, you're not going to go buy a, a cold fusion or a fusion plant. You're going to just throw another, you know, 40 acres of solar panels right outside your, your, your town and throw five Tesla mega packs together for 1% of the cost of whatever a fusion plant 30 years from now would be. So yes, it's amazing. It's, it's incredible, but to have it at scale and done on the planet, I think is, uh, again, there's economics driving yep. most of the things that go on in the world. So when are we going to create a, uh, a Dyson sphere? When is that? on the <laughs> Probably never. <laughs> we don't see them. We don't. We, we don't see them out in, in in the solar system. So I would assume either we're the first civilization ever to come around to reach this level, or Dyson spheres. Some something between now and Dyson spheres is like doesn't uh, uh, the great filter kind of keeps us keeps that from happening. But yeah, man, somewhere between the the Drake equation, the Fermi paradox, we're we're somewhere in between. Yeah. But um, all right, last thing, last thing, I promise. So what energy source do you think will be dominant in a hundred years? What, what energy source? Yeah. yeah. I think it's going to be a combination of renewable electricity. We touched on that. And then um, once you electrify most things, like you can electrify a train, just put a big electric motor in there. 
and you have massive batteries that are like loaded in by cranes or carts and those are charged up by the renewable electricity grid so there's all these like pathways on how to to electrify as much stuff as possible for the hard to decarbonize things like the molecule side there's also pathways to get to uh, a, a decarbonized society um but i think the dominant energy source and it's a trend we're seeing now and i think it's only going to improve like no one's going to be making more fossil fuel power plants in the first world um, anymore, I don't think. Like there's just no more incentive for that. And it is less, uh, it is more costly. So like, so to me, re renewable electricity, that, that's wind, solar, hydro. Um, you're gonna have a mixture of uh, fission that's nuclear uh, to fill in the gaps. And then you're gonna have battery storage or there's some cool, you mentioned gravity batteries. There's some uh, some unique locations that can pump a lot of water up a hill into like a massive basin uh, with using renewable, uh, renewable energy to, to pump water up there. And then when the sun goes down, you simply reverse the flow and open the dam and let that come right back down again, spinning a turbine in reverse and then powering your city. So people are so clever, man. They'll yeah. come up with amazing things. But yeah, once you understand like potential energy, kinetic energy, electric energy, and how those uh, relate to each other, you can start to come up with these amazing ideas. And I think, uh, I think people are very, you know, people are amazing. And, uh, the, the things that can come up with, I tend to have a lot of faith that we can get out of this, uh, mess that we've gotten ourselves into, you know, we're, we're a diabetic basically right now. Uh, and we need to get healthy. Right. And, uh, I, there's, there's ways to do it. Science has shown that, uh, every pathway is in fact decarbonizable, if that's the word. Um, it's just going to take time, incentive structures, public pressure, and uh, government incentives. I already said that, but um, you know, economies of scale, infrastructure change is going to take time uh, yeah. before eventually, you know, eventually we close the loop and, and try to get the Earth back to its, you know, equilibrium that we are so quickly destabilizing. Um, throughout our daily lives, living in our first world country that we do. <laughs> no, man, I, I think that's awesome. That's a great way to wrap it up. I honestly really fucking appreciate this conversation. It's been really educational for me. And that was one of the main reasons why I even wanted to do this podcast was to sit back, be dumb for a little bit and ask some questions. So yeah, man, before we go, is there anything that you want to plug, like where people can potentially find out more about you, your company, what you guys are researching, what you guys are doing at the moment? Um. Not really. I don't really have any any social medias other than just my like personal, uh, you know, Instagram and stuff. And I don't really blog about it or anything like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I would just say, you know, if folks are interested in this stuff, um, just Google these international energy associations. They've, they've got just, you know, 150 page PDF documents. That's for free for anyone to read. Uh, this is what executives are reading when they're deciding what to do with their companies like these people went out and did the research and they figured out this is, you know, these are the most economical means of getting to X, Y, and Z. And so I would just say if, if people are interested, go study what, uh, you know, those, those papers and those things that like go actually read why, um, why things happen the way they do and try not to get caught up in, in all the hype that you hear every day, because man, there's a lot of it and a lot of it's bullshit. And, uh, 
And, you know, it, it might even take a science background to understand those papers or to, to know what that means. And that in itself is, can be a challenge. But um, if, if you really want to know, um, you know, I just, yeah, recommend those International Energy Associations, the IRENA. And then there's a National Renewable Energy Laboratory, NREL, uh, in the, that the U.S. has, Department of Energy as well. Um, people can go in and just start Googling and reading around on, on, on what they, what we can do to help the problem. It's not simply buying a Tesla, although that's, I, I'm a big fan and, and yes, we need to decarbonize transportation, but um, there's a lot more to it. And I hope that's a message that folks take home. Like uh, just look around you, man, everything's fossil fuels and, you know, whether, you know, malevolent or benevolent, what, however you put it, like you're using it. and uh, and we're all intimately connected with it. And um, I appreciate it. You know, it's gotten us to this point, right? We're all probably alive because of it, uh, because of that energy source. But uh, now it's time to change. And uh, if we don't, <laughs> it's bad news bears. Fucked. So. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> fucked. Yeah. All right, man. I appreciate it so much. Uh, thank you. I think that at some point, maybe we should do this again, maybe in yeah, a couple of years and we can we can review all the things we got wrong. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Exactly. And this is always ever evolving, right? There's no, if anyone had a crystal ball and, and you know, I, I wouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't be at work. I'd be uh, on a beach somewhere trading, but. <laughs> Beautiful, man. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate all the knowledge. And yeah, man, we'll have to do this again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bryce.